0: wonder if you uh, uh, woke this morning an hour earlier or an hour later, it gets confusing at this time of night, but did anyone here just uh, have a little rash, uh, rush or dash um, this morning here and uh, the clocks hadn't wound their way back or forth, anyone prepared to uh, um, just... Uh own up or fess up to any of those things? No, we are looking a little bit smiley or happy or a little bit tired this morning? The good thing about Daylight Saving is that you gain extra light but you lose an hour. Gain extra light but lose an hour. Welcome today, glad to have you here with us. If you join us online, glad to have you here with us as well. As Alex has just said, the last number of weeks we've been exploring this theme called posture. In a complex, complicated, sometimes conflicted world, how did Jesus' followers actually Themselves, and so we've been looking at Jesus and looking at the way in which He interacts with people. And so we thought it would be appropriate and apt as we head towards Christmas, believe it or not, it is coming, um, that we might just pause for a moment and look at a particular letter. That a gentleman by the name of Paul wrote to a group of Jesus followers living in and around this city that is located on the western shores of modern day Turkey. This city by the name of Ephesus was a Roman colony, it uh, was written in the late uh, 50s AD. And if you had have asked one of the local citizens of Ephesus what marked out this city more than any other in that area, they would say it inhabited one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the great temple to Artemis, the fertility god. And there was a whole trade going on around this temple. In fact, many of the citizens would have probably um, uh, acquainted or have purchased for themselves a little figurine of this goddess of fertility and they would have placed it maybe on their mantle in their home. In the morning time when they woke up, they might pray to it. They might give it flowers, give it some food because they believed that the representation of that goddess was present to them in this physical figure, if you like. And so Paul, who's writing as a Jesus follower, believes reflexively that There is one true God or goddess, if you like, and that God has been revealed in the person of Jesus. And so he has gone around the empire declaring these things. And as a result of that, he finds himself in prison. And from that place in prison, he takes, if you like, pen to papyri. And he begins to write a letter to all of those would-be followers of Jesus, that small cluster of people that inhabit the, the cities and the surrounds beyond Ephesus to, if you like, encourage them in the hubbub every day in their life because it can be so easy to forget the sense of what God has done for them in their lives. And so as they face the challenges, as they face the hardships, as they face the course of everyday life and where they can get distracted from that which he believes to be true about them, he pens a letter to write to them, to encourage them in these things. And so we're going to run through that now. And if you'd like to follow with us, if you have a Bible there or if you want to look online, it's Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through to 14. This is what he launches into in the third verse. He says these words, Let us bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. He has blessed us in the King with every spirit-inspired blessing in the heavenly realm. We don't do too many blessings these days, don't we? You might actually have someone sneeze and you'll hear someone say, bless you. You don't know why you say it. It's just a habit in our culture. It's just something that you say. Maybe someone has a meal and they pray over it a blessing. But pretty much in our day and age, in our culture, we don't use this word too often. What is it? It's this idea of a positive disposition towards someone else in thankfulness for a good deed or something kind, generous that they have done for you. And Paul, sitting in his cell, wanting to write to those followers of Jesus living in and around the city of Ephesus, he wants them to know. That God in his heavenly dimension, not sitting there on a, on a cotton wool cloud, but that dimension of created order that is outside the eyesight of humans right now. God's order, his dimension. He wants them to understand that from where God dwells, he has given to them every spiritual blessing that he can muster up from where he inhabits, from where he dwells. Not far away close to and present, just outside the dimensions of the eyesight that we can see right now. And so he says to them, I want you to understand every single blessing that God has for you. Two weeks ago, my wife took a trip up to Canberra. She was booking aeroplanes. And uh, if you've done any air travel over the last few months maybe longer than that, you would understand that the air travel right now is a little bit clunky. Has anyone been caught in transit somewhere and they've had their cancellation happen time and time again? I know there's some people in this room, well done for making it here. Maybe you're watching online right now in um, in some transit place in an airport because your airplane has been cancelled. Well, my wife did her bookings and she found this other alternate route, this whole another airline industry she didn't know about. It's called Rex. She went to, I dropped her off. Yes, some of you know Rex, right? We dropped her off at Q4 there at Telemarine, and she, she went. And she called me about an hour and a half, two hours later. She said, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. I said, what happened? She said, well, I went in there. There was someone behind the desk like concierge who came and took my bags and put them on and was so helpful. They knew my name. They knew my name and they said it repeatedly and they were really polite and kind. In fact, we got talking and they said they used to work for this other big airline and this other big airline doesn't look after their employees nearly half as well as Rex does and in fact, more so, when they said, have a great flight and enjoy your day and I got... To sort of step on board the airplane, guess what happened? I said, What? She said, I had been upgraded not to just business class, but first class on Rex. I said, Wow, what does first class on Rex look like? She said, you just sit near the front of the airplane. But however, (laughs) apart from that. It was awesome. I said, she said, the only one downside of being on Rex was this. I said, what's that? I was flying to Canberra. <laughs> I only got an hour and a half flight of first class. They're the sort of times in which you want to do a whole loop the loop of Australia. You just want to say to the captain, let's just go on a journey. She said it was great. She couldn't sing praises loud enough because of an airline that had treated her well. If you asked her... If she'd been blessed by Rex, she would say, of course I have, and abundantly so. And Paul, taking pen to papyri, wanting to write to Jesus' followers in and around Ephesus, wants them to know every single spiritual blessing, if you like, that God has issued before them the moment that they said yes to Jesus. The moment that they said, I believe that you rose to new life and you are the king of the world and you're the king of my life. Come and take up ownership and governance and rulership of it. He said, you don't understand what God has done and is doing for you. And so he presses on and he says these words. He chose us in him, that is in Jesus to be holy and irreproachable before the world was made in love. He presses on and he says these words, He foreordained us to be adopted as sons and daughters. That's how he wanted it and that's what gave him great delight. These two ideas that God chose them, that God foreordained them before the beginning of the world. These two incredible ideas and unfathomable concepts, what are they? It's not this idea that God is like some arbitrary PE teacher who lines up the whole class in front of them and gives all authority in heaven on earth to two students to pick the besties, right? And leave the discards to the side. No, that's not it at all. What Paul wants to get across to them is this profound sense That when God actually planned for you to be with him and for him to be with you, it wasn't some sort of arbitrary reflex reaction. Like he was walking down the shopping aisles in the supermarket and he's just heard that there's a pandemic that's hit the city and everyone's reflexively reaching for all the toilet paper because they think that they'll run out. Or maybe they're reaching for the pastor on the bottom shelf and stacking it up as much as they can because they're in for the long haul. What he wants them to know is that in some curious, unfathomable, mysterious way, he says that when you said yes to Jesus and he welcomed you into his family, it wasn't some reflex reaction like it was a last minute idea. It was his intent and his purpose before the world began. He said that in some way God was reaching out towards you and that's his heart and his desire and, and, and his, his action and his intent that's been towards you and towards his world before it actually came into being. And he did it not because he had to, like his arm had been twisted behind his back. He did it because he wanted to in love And it gave him incredible, great delight. The moment someone says yes to Jesus, he dusts them off, welcomes them into his family, and he he names them a son or daughter of the living God. Many years ago, my family was traveling around Central Australia on a trip. Friends of ours gave us their Toyota Troopy to drive into Palm Valley. I innocently said sure I'll drive that big beast of a vehicle and they said oh yeah you just mm, just drive it in and I thought that's all you needed to do until I got to this river crossing where there was no water but just this big long piece of sand and I realized because I'd watched shows before like the LV Mangles things or something and who were those people that went around Australia that whatever you do you do not stop when you're driving through sand and so I began to drive down into this riverbed and as I was starting to make my halfway across in the middle of nowhere, it kind of got slower and the wheels began to kind of dig into the sand. And so um, I just kept pressing the accelerator until it came to a full stop. And, and then I knew that when I was bogged in sand, the last thing you do is reverse it because it just digs you in deeper than the other sand, the, the other side. And so um, I put it into reverse. And, <laughs> and I tried to reverse my way out. And I just went deeper into it. And then the whole family's looking at me in this huge Toyota Troopy. And they're saying, Dad, what have you done? And I said, I don't know. I didn't even know. I've never driven a Toyota Troopy before until we were in the middle of nowhere. And we thought we were going to be stuck here for like years. <laughs> and we're outside the van sitting in the sand, you know, in this riverbed. I do not know what to do until there was this other vehicle that came around the corner. And uh, it was a Nissan Patrol. And I had no idea of this discussion that's been going on in four-wheel drive circles for millennia. But the next thing I heard was this guy jumped out of his car and from the other side of the riverbed, he called out, Oh, mate, mate, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) Seriously, I'm not joking. He did this. In the middle of nowhere, we're dying in this sand, like just starving to death. And he's, mate, this is the best day of my life. I said, oh, I didn't say anything. Um, he said, because I will, I will pull you out of the sand if you let me take a photo of my Nissan Patrol pulling your Toyota Trippy out of the bog. <laughs> he said, you have made my day. I'm going to send this to my son. This is awesome. Like seriously, he was saying this. So I humbly just said whatever (laughs) and he pulled us out and and we were rescued and we weren't going to, I don't know, perish in the the middle of nowhere. And it just so happens that when we got to the other side, he and his wife, we stopped for a moment and we talked and we discovered that, that they were Jesus' followers. And the doctor had said to him and his wife, the cancer's in remission, go now. And so they were. And so we paused right there on the edge of the riverbed, not in it, and we prayed together, giving thanks to God for each other. Because this is universal sense of being adopted into God's family, sisters and brothers that knows no bounds. See, the moment that you said yes to Jesus, you might not have understood this, but you got welcomed into a family If someone pauses and asks, you know, in the midst of this chaos, what's God doing to fix the world? Paul would have written the instinctive reflex of God is that this has been planned from the beginning of time, but he's fixing the world by making a new family where you have an older brother, Jesus, and a heavenly father who's good. And he's transforming the world one by one by one. And so Paul goes on and he says, if you understand these things and you grasp them, there might be this reflex action inside of you so that you might come to grasp and understand the wonder of his goodness that might receive its due praise that's been signaled towards you. His grace and his goodness that says, I love you indiscriminately. I want you to be with myself openly and I just want my goodness and my kindness to be showered upon this world and upon you as well. And Paul writing from a prison cell, he wants to impress this upon them. He might even be asking the question, really in light of these things, do you know who you really are? The world might define you in a gazillion different ways. The temple of Artemis might give some of the citizens of that great city some identification markers, but I want you to know deep down this. The moment you said yes to Jesus, he welcomed you into his family, and that is the most defining, significant marker in your life that you could imagine. Do you really know who you are? And he presses on and he says these words. We have deliverance, you see. Sins have been forgiven through his blood, and the wealth of his grace has been lavished on you. I have this picture of you, you go to afternoon tea and, and the, the host offers you sort of a biscuit and it's just like the plain style, right? But that's not so with God. I love this word, lavish. It's as though you turn up to his place and he's baked the scones and he's pulled out the best jam and he just puts it on top of your scone that's still kind of just warm out of the oven and then he gets the best cream that he's made and he lavishes it on top and on top and on top and on top and he says, here, this is for you. You see, God delivered you, if you like, not because he had to but because he wanted to. And he understands that the first reflex of his was to say, I want to deliver you from the blemishes and the grime and, and if you like the dirt and the muck of this world that can be so true towards us because compared to God, he is holy and we are unholy. God is totally other and wholly other. And how can human beings stand before him, the mortal with the immortal? the unholy with the holy, the blemished with the unblemished. By nature, human beings just reflexively are sinners in comparison with the great goodness of who God is. That means we want to call the shots and do so regularly. Jesus said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. Greed, pride, lust, envy, slander, all of these things. And it's not that God says, I don't think you're of any worth. Sometimes we confuse sinfulness with worthlessness, and it's not the same. But in God's goodness, he says, when he came down in the person of his son, he says he made it possible. When he was hanging on that cross, he said, He who knew no sin, he became it, took upon himself all of my blemishes, my wrong, my deeds, my guilt, He took them upon himself. And in the ancient world, blood has a power because life is in the blood. And so the ancient Jewish people understood that blood, believe it or not, was like this ancient ritual detergent that when it's applied, it washes things and makes them clean so no blemishes are left. The moment you said yes to Jesus because of what he has done, he shed his blood, if you like, it's as though he reached into your life and he washed you clean from the inside out. Yes, yes, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, Jesus washes you clean so that you and I could stand before a totally other, holy, powerful God because that's how he wanted it. And he lavished His goodness and deliverance upon us. Further than that, Paul goes on and he says, he made known to us the secret of this purpose. It wasn't just something that by chance, he he saw the whole thing going wrong and said, I've got to sort of put this to right now. It's just as he wanted it. He presses on and he says this. His plan was to sum up the whole cosmos. That is, everything in the heavens and on the earth, in the King, in Him, in Jesus. I don't quite grasp the totality of what this kind of means, but Paul understood that that, that moment that Jesus rose to new life on that Easter Sunday morning, he was putting into motion, uh, if you like, a turning of the tide a changing of the status quo, that when Jesus came to new life, it meant that he had authority over death, the evil powers... And over any sin that would actually hold him down in the ground, he overtook it all and he delivered and he was more powerful than. And as a result of that, God said that through him, he's going to bring heaven and earth together. That is the dimension where God dwells and the dimension where we dwell one day, heaven and earth overlapping, coming together A new heavens and a new earth where you can inhabit with him. And somehow he said that God is doing that through his son Jesus, and he's going to bring all things together under his rulership and his governance and his power. Like a mother hen gathering her chicks, he wants to bring them in all under his wings. That was his great delight, and it was in him. Do you know what he has done? for you. And then he reaches on and he says these words, you mightn't understand this, but we've received an inheritance that's available to any and every single person. You're welcome too. You've received an inheritance. You're ordained for this. And it was in him. And what's the nature of that inheritance? He said that when you grasp what that is, is that there might elicit something deep with inside of you that would just bubble up and rise over so that you might actually turn your heart and mind towards God and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for me. He goes on and he, he presses that a little bit deeper and he says, this inheritance that is coming your way, that is that you will inherit God and that he will inherit you. This has been sealed, if you like, with his spirit. The moment someone says yes to Jesus, he breathes into them his new life and he marks them out with his spirit. It's called the spirit of promise, which is a guarantee, if you like, of the inheritance, your inheritance, until the time when God's special possession, that is, is reclaimed and finally freed. The image that he has in mind here as in his prison cell is of an ancient seal of wax being poured out on the, an envelope in which you might have someone who has their insignia, an important person who would press their marker into that seal of wax so that when that letter is taken somewhere and it's opened, they know if it's been tampered with or not. It also carries the value, if you like, of, of the actual person whose signature it actually represents. Jesus says that when you actually follow him, And he fills him with your spirit. That spirit is like a guarantee, like God's seal upon you, unknown to you necessarily, but visible to him, marked out by God's spirit in your life. So that one day, one day, one day, when Jesus brings it all together again, he might be able to identify and see those who know him because he knows them. Many years ago, in the ancient land of, <laughs> of buying and selling, there used to be a thing called layby. <laughs> Does anyone remember layby? The younger ones it's got nothing to do with laying by anywhere. But the way in which layby worked is that If you saw something in a store that you really liked and you wanted it but you didn't have enough money for it right now, you could leave a deposit and that was called the lay-by that you would leave at the store and they they would take that item and they would place it in a special place behind the desk, the lay-by place, where it would be kept in safekeeping for you until you paid it off. (laughs) Maybe every fortnight or every month you would come and give a small portion until you'd paid the full amount and then it was ready to be received. Until the day came which you would have your lay-by ticket. You would walk to the store and you would say today I'm picking up my (laughs) lay-by and then you would bring it home where it truly belonged. You'd put it on or you'd show it around and this was Something you'd been waiting for for so long. You'd paid a price. It was ready to be received. I wonder if you're here this morning. And you wonder how God reflexively orients himself towards you. He says, Don't you know that when you received him and said yes to him, he marked you out? And he's just waiting for the time in which he's going to bring all the fullness together under his son, Jesus. Finally, that day in which you will be set free from all the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges and you'll be reclaimed because he already has done that. If you like, you'll pick up his lab eyes so much even more. And he does it because of love. He doesn't do it because his arm's been twisted behind his back. He does it because... It's his good pleasure, and you are his treasured possession. His great worth, this world that you're part of. And it's all got to do with him. Sometimes we don't grasp the great depths which God has done until we realize the heights from which he has plunged, and sometimes the depths to which we've gone in our own lives, to realize the enormous price that he has paid and the incredible love that he has demonstrated in him. From top to bottom, from east to west, from beginning to the end, it's all been about him and through him and for him and in him, his son, Jesus so that when you catch a glimpse of him, there might be some action within inside of you that might just respond with this overwhelming sense of an inordinate praise for the goodness and the graciousness that God has poured out upon this world and towards you. So let me ask you, do you know who you are? Do you know what he's done for you? And do you know what he is doing and will bring about into completion? This week I was talking to some switched on psychologists who are part of our community. I asked them some questions about this core thing we're looking at, which has got to do with identity. Identity. And I asked them, what is identity? Identity. And astutely, they said, identity has got to do with this idea of the way in which we perceive ourselves. I said, what makes for a a well-shaped sense of identity? They said, well, safety, a sense of acceptance and loving kindness towards you. And then one of them astutely said, One of the tricky things for Jesus' followers to figure out is that they've been told about this unconditional love of God, but then they experience conditioned love in their own lives, maybe in their families of origin, their school friends, their work colleagues, the world around about. It creates a tension. So that's interesting. Because even though I'd agree that God's love is unconditional, it's not that he doesn't make any claim upon us or expect anything as though... It's all done. No. Life with God has got to do with an inward change of his love working inside of me so that I say no to some desires and yes to others, so that he's making me from the inside out more God-like, more spirit-filled, more like him in the world. But also the challenge is if you've experienced conditioned love of a great degree, how difficult that is to blend the two together. In fact, one of them said this, the three most important relationships that you will have to navigate in your life are these. The relationship you have with yourself, the relationship you have to others, the relationship you might have with God. So the challenge with the relationship you have with yourself is sometimes the self-talk that you have, the things that you've come to believe about yourself through circumstances. Are you always your best critic? Are you always your good friend? And then there's the others. And of course, we have a really accurate picture how other people think about us, don't we? And we're not really interested in the perception we have of what other people's perception is of us. <laughs> but that there's only one person who truly sees you, who knows you fully inside out, top to bottom, and loves And you might go, well, if you only knew what, and this secret thing that I, well, heads up. I think God already knows. And other people might too. And he still loves you. That's why he came. And then they said, as we talked about, the individuating that's happening right now as identities being reshaped in another way. I said, this is such a caustic, complex area, and they agreed. made one astute observation. They said, interestingly, even as gender and even beyond gender is being explored right now, as there's a sense for some people that they don't feel like they fit, and so there's this reflex internal action that says, I need to individuate myself to separate myself from others so that I have a name, or that I have some way of actually seeing myself that marks me out. And they said the problem and the challenge with that is that it's the very thing that actually forces them away from the connection to other people. As they pull, if you like, towards identity away from, it's the very thing they're longing and needing at the other end is a sense of connection to other, and that's complex. And then I asked them, what does it mean for you? to have a sense of identity marked out in Jesus. One of them said, it anchors me. The other said, I feel like I'm accepted. I feel like I have significance. And I feel like I am secure, come what may. I wonder if you need to understand a, a truer picture of God's response to you today. Come on up, Gormach. Thanks, guys. I wonder if it might be apt right now just to pause for a moment. I wonder how God might be speaking to you. Do you know who you are? Do you know what he has done for you? Do you know what he's bringing about? And I wonder how you might allow that to shape you in your world. As these guys play right now. I'm going to pray. And if you would like to have a clearer picture, God's picture of you to shape you, why don't you pray with me now before we pause and give thanks to God. Jesus, here in this place, thank you for what you have done for us. And I ask that you might reveal yourself to us. afresh, Father, in this place, for those who have a clunky image or perception of self, you take away those barriers give a clearer picture of who they are in you. So today, right here, they might know the security that comes in you, the acceptance that is in you, love that is found in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together.